Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. I wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about my favorite baby food brand. So I actually don't buy a lot of baby food and I don't use it a lot, but I do like to have some baby food, some pouches on hand just for those moments where I feel like I need something convenient or I need to just throw something in my diaper bag and go. So my favorite baby food brand and really the only one we use now is Serenity Kids. The reason that I love Serenity Kids so much is because they focus on nutrient-dense foods such as pasture-raised and grass-fed meat and organic vegetables. So I know that the quality is amazing and I feel safe and confident feeding it to my baby. You can go to myserenitykids.com and use the code TaylorKulik15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Super, super excited for this podcast episode today. I know I say that for everyone, but I just have some really good podcast episodes this season, guys, and I'm so excited about the interviews that I'm having. So today I am talking with Jenna Ham, who is a clinical social worker um, from Canada, and she is going to be talking with us about sleep training, about the nervous system, about the stages of the autonomic nervous system, and then what is happening in the infant's nervous system during separation-based sleep training. And then we're also going to get into talking about what is happening in the parent's nervous system. Why is um, non-responsive sleep training also difficult for parents? And so in between that, we're going to be having some little tangents and conversations about different things. Um, but this conversation is really oriented around the nervous system and will hopefully help you guys get a deeper understanding of the nervous system and what is going on, especially related to sleep training and responsiveness. So Jenna is a clinical social worker and yoga teacher from Manitoba, I think is how you say that, Canada. She is trained in polyvagal theory, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and internal family systems. Jenna also holds a certification in nutrition and integrative medicine for mental health. Her private practice is centered around empowerment through education and healing, from past events and trauma of all kinds. Jenna's clients experience a creative integration of many modalities to promote the best possible outcomes. She's not interested in providing symptom management, but rather complete healing and the reversal of internal suffering. Jenna works with a diverse client base with a wide range of histories and related survival strategies. Her approach works with most individuals because of her thorough understanding of human biology, the autonomic nervous system, and the psyche. Jenna strives to teach and inspire everyone to trust in their ability to recover from anything. So without further ado, let's get to this amazing conversation. Hi, Jenna. Thank you so much for being here. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, Jenna, I am a clinical social worker in Canada. Um, I have a five-year-old son and pregnant with a 
another little boy right now, um, mostly practicing privately and doing trauma therapy. So I'm trained in EMDR, polyvagal theory, and internal family systems. Uh, I also have a certification in nutrition and integrative medicine. So I tie that into my practice a little bit. Um, I do some teaching like workshops, different things like that online these days. Um, and that's, yeah, that's most of what takes up my time. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was reading your bio. I follow you on Instagram. I've been following you for a while, but I was reading your bio and I was like, wow, she has like so many certifications and you have extensive experience and knowledge about all kinds of things. So I'm so excited to have the chance to talk to you and pick your brain a little bit. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. Okay. So we're going to be talking about sleep training. I feel like we have to always, or I have to always kind of put out this disclaimer before we start talking about heavy topics like sleep training, that we are not judging any parents who have made the decision to sleep train. I started, I dabbled in some sleep, some sleep training with my first child, um, just didn't work out for us, didn't feel right. And then I learned more. Um, but we understand, I think for the most part, why, parents may choose to sleep train, why they may feel like they have no other choice. So none of what we're talking about is really meant to be a judgment on parents. It is a kind of a critique and just education about the practice of sleep training and what that does. Um, So first, before we kind of get into that, can you give us a little bit of foundation and um, information about what is the autonomic nervous system and what are those autonomic nervous system states? Because I think that will help listeners understand what you're going to talk about after that. Yeah, for sure. There's so many ways to talk about this and, and it is being talked about a lot. And, you know, we used to always just hear like fight flight versus versus rest and digest, right? Like those were the two options and that's not quite accurate. So polyvagal theory was sort of developed in the eighties by Dr. Stephen Porches. And he found that we actually have six states. So three of them are primary, what we call primary states and three of them are mixed. So you can think of it sort of like primary colors and then colors that are um, created by combining two right? Mm -hmm. So we could have two states active at the same time. And um, it'd be nice if I could show a visual (laughs) that I can't in this context, but if you can imagine a ladder, like we often use this analogy of a ladder. So at the bottom is the dorsal vagal state. And, you know, we could also just call it shutdown or collapse, but it's sort of that like worst case scenario, we're taking you out. We, it's like a, there's a lot of analgesic chemicals that will be produced when someone's in that state. Um, of like an animal, the, the example that we would see with an animal is like they play dead when they're in that much distress, that, that much shock, or they're that, that afraid or that close to death, right? So shutdown is sort of like, okay, life threat, that's it. We're turning the lights out sort of thing, right? Mm. The next primary state is sympathetic. So this is our fight flight response where we're either running away from something that's threatening or we're putting pressure on it to to get it further away from us. So it's always about creating distance between ourselves and the threat um, in some way, or sometimes drawing in something that adds safety. (laughs) So calling for safety that can happen in a sympathetic state too. And then at the top of the ladder, we have the safe and social state. Sometimes we call it ventral vagal, that's the more medical term for it. Uh, But this is like our, you know, social engagement system. This is when we feel calm, we feel connected, everything's all good. There's no survival response when we're up there, uh, or at least when we're totally in a ventral state. 
the mixed states are, the first one is the combination of shutdown and sympathetic. So this is, I mean, I always call it like, you know, the worst of both worlds. So both survival states are active simultaneously. So you feel immobilized, like I cannot do anything, but you're still anxious, you're still terrified. It's really, really intense. This is where panic attacks tend to happen. This is how most people describe their experience with like procrastination. It can be more of a shutdown response to like not get yourself to do things, but usually people are very stressed by their inability to do something, right? It's like they, they need to get started and they just can't. So that's the freeze state, the first mixed state. And then the next mixed state is playfulness. So this is where we have some of that sympathetic energy. Um, it really does feel more like energy when it's mixed with the safety state. And then we can be spontaneous and do, I don't know, fun things and <laughs> jump around and, you know, kids, kids ideally spend a lot of time in playfulness. And then the final mixed state is the combination of safety and uh, shutdown or safety in the dorsal response. And this is what we need for um, stillness, like for, for things like meditation to be comfortable which can be quite difficult. It can be hard for a lot of systems to feel safe and immobile at the same time. And actually one of the reasons is because most things that register as traumatic, uh, if not all things that register as traumatic are things where we were immobilized. So we tend to do quite well if we were able to fight or flee, or we were able to scream loud enough that somebody came, that actually does feel like a, kind of like a complete loop where it's like, okay, the scary thing happened. I did something, it, it got better. I got away or someone came to help me and I'm okay. So there's no need for the brain and nervous system to sort of cling to that experience. It's sort of, it's complete, it's resolved. It can be stored away in long-term memory. But when we couldn't, and this is why childhood is so uh, significant, we're so vulnerable in childhood is because we usually can't do anything. Like we can't run away from our caregivers if they're being harmful or neglectful to us. So we have to stay. And, and then often our only option is to become immobile. Um, so yeah, most things that register as traumatic in our systems have to do with immobility. And then when we try to be immobile, for something like meditation, that can be quite uncomfortable, you know? So this is why people talk about like, oh, I just get a racing mind every time I try to sit down and do this thing that everybody says is gonna be good for me. It's like, yeah, it's just a reminder. It's activating one of those unresolved or incomplete experiences and your system doesn't like it. It wants you to move. It wants you to keep thinking. It wants you to do anything that feels like you're not sitting, like a sitting duck essentially mm -hmm. waiting for more pain to come. So those are the states <laughs> and sort of what happens, um, a little bit about what happens when uh, threats occur or the nervous system interpret threat in our environment or in our relationships. I don't know. Let me know if you have more questions about that. <laughs> I can clarify. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually really helpful. I do have just a question. This is a this is a little bit, it, it's related, but not related. I'm curious. So I know this is polyvagal theory and I know that it's called a theory. So what I'm wondering about is, um, is there a lot of evidence that supports this theory? Like, is this the current dominant theory right now? Or are there other theories? Like, are there people that don't agree with this theory? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. There are critiques of it, I think, but usually... It's more about um, like how it's used, I, in my understanding anyway, it's more about how polyvagal is being used 
therapeutically. So like one of the big critiques is like, okay, well, we can't expect somebody who's living in a specific type of environment to ever access their ventral vagal state because they need to be in a survival state. So we can't be encouraging everybody to regulate and we can't, you know, whatever. So it's usually more around the application. Um, there's no other like competing theory about what's happening autonomically. Like this is sort of the only this is like the best practice, like mo yeah. like most evidence-based theory right now. That's right. That we know. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that because I think um I think it can throw people off. And sometimes it throws me off when I hear the word theory because I know that theory isn't like a fact. It's not like we know for absolute 100 percent certain that this is how things are working right now, but that's what evidence and what we do know is it's most likely that this is what it kind of looks like. Is am I understanding that correctly? Yes, okay. totally. Yeah, and I don't. And yeah, I'm like, I'm curious when that'll shift because we we're still talking about attachment theory, which was you know a lot of the research started around the same time in the 80s, um, and it's like there is a lot of evidence. There've been a lot of studies even from the beginning, um, like looking at you know mother child diets and things like that. So I'm like, I don't know when they they turn it into something that's not theoretical anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe when it comes to this realm of things, although like compared to other like therapeutic theories, like things that we use in the context of, of therapy, um, polyvagal theory is, we can study it. Like we can see the nerves light up um, mm -hmm. in fMRI scans and things like that. So there is a little bit more proof. It's not just like a soft science. There is some um some things that we can actually measure so there is a big difference there versus you know what might be more subjective in attachment theory when you're like oh the, the baby did this when the mom did that or whatever the baby responded this way when the mom withdrew her care whatever that is still like the subjective right that's an observer's um opinion about what happened so yeah i don't know i don't know when the shift will happen yeah It'll and if we're going to call things theories forever. <laughs> well, and I think it brings up kind of an interesting point that a lot of people don't think about is that much of what we currently believe or the way that the medical system, psych, you know, psychologists, all of these people and systems work and the way they practice with the human body, a lot of those things are based on theory, not fact, because it's the human body is very um, difficult to study comprehensively and we can't always be certain about everything that's going on within the human body. And there's also just so much that we don't know still. And so I think that's just important for people to remember. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of people don't think about stuff like that. Like even within the medical system, it's all kind of based on like theory and like the available evidence that we have at any given moment. Totally. Yeah. And even just like how the serotonin thing came out fairly yeah. recently about how we actually don't have proof that serotonin is linked to higher rates or a low, like low serotonin is linked to higher rates of depression. And like, I knew that. Like I did too. Yeah. yeah. But I was, if I ever said that I would get attacked, I have been attacked for that before and called like a conspiracy theorist. And I know Kelly Brogan, I, I think you're familiar with Kelly Brogan's work. Um, right. I, I don't know. I'm, I might just be assuming that. I feel like you've talked about her before. Mm -hmm. Um, but I read her book and she talked about that and her book was written years ago. So it's interesting because a lot of people thought that that, that ser serotonin linked to depression thing was just absolute fact. And that's how it was often presented by the medical community, but it's, it's not. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know it is so interesting. And I know I can feel, I think the reason that people get so angry is because it does register as threatening. It's like, well, if the doctors aren't right, if like that, that institution that I'm supposed to go to, to get like life-saving treatment, 
doesn't actually know, that's absolutely terrifying. Um, And then it's like, okay, well, can we come back to ourselves? And I think that that's relevant to this topic on sleep training too. It's like, I think there was this like period of time, 50s, 60s, I don't know, when it just started to be this like, okay, authority came in to tell us what was right and what to do. Often and doctors were very much involved in this. And it was like, no questions asked, you just do. And now we're in this like information space where you're like, wait a minute, like, why do we do that? Why, why are we, you know, using these medications and, and not those? Or why are we doing this with our kids? Why are we using these types of punishments? <laughs> why are we right. eating food? Like, it's just this now we're questioning things or it's like a mm-hmm. it's interesting um, shift, but I get that it's, it's scary. Like, it's scary to even consider that our pediatrician who said sleep training was the best thing to do might have been wrong or that the prescription was not actually what we needed or whatever. It is, it's a very, um, like it requires a lot of capacity in our nervous systems to sit with that potential and be curious (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and then have the availability to like look at so many different ideas and perspectives and trust ourselves enough to choose our own, you know. And I think it's also this element of more personal responsibility and accountability, which is really tough for people. Like when you've kind of been raised in a system and a worldview in which the experts, the the professionals, the people that have the degrees and the letters behind their name, those are the authorities and they'll tell you what to do and how to live. And they're, you know, um, they're infallible. And when you realize, Hey, they actually don't always have all of the answers and they actually can be wrong. And they're just doing the best they can with the information that they have access to then that requires personal responsibility, which I think is one of the biggest, like from my perspective, one of the biggest problems in our society right now um, that encompasses so much, including the sleep training topic. But even more than that, it's that people I think don't have the capacity or don't want to take on that personal responsibility when they haven't maybe had to do that or felt the need to do that in the past. Yeah, totally. And it is like, it's like you said, it's sort of like new. It's like this thing that, you know, our generation will be a couple before us are just starting to explore doing, you know, it used to just be that, you know, you get up every day, you go to your job, you listen to your boss, you listen to your parents, you, you know, mm-hmm. listen to the doctor and like, that was it. Like you didn't spend a lot of time. And in some, and I get that because that sounds quite nice actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it is overwhelming. It is so overwhelming to have access to never ending amounts of information and having to kind of um, figure out what is true and what is not and what is right for you and what is not right for you. And it is overwhelming. And I honestly think it's like, we, I don't think that we are designed to take in so much information at any given time. So it's like a tough, it's like a tough balance. It is. But I will say though, is like, for me at least, um, and it's taken a very long time because I've been like studying this, you know, the topic of this podcast for a very long time. And then, you know, nutrition and health and all of these other things that I'm very interested in. And so it's been a long journey. And like, there were times even not long ago where I would like come across information that was different from what I thought was true. And it would just be like, it would unravel, I would be unraveled. Like I would just be like, yeah. oh my gosh, what do I do now? I can't eat this food anymore. And I yeah. have to do and if now I'm just like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that could be true. But I don't know. I, I feel good eating dairy or yeah. <laughs> feel fine with what I'm doing. So I'm going to stick with it. Like if there's just this, you get to this place, I think most of us who take this route and do the, the research and start finding their own way and taking responsibility for themselves, you reach this point where it's like, 
that's it's it actually is very calming because things don't like penetrate you anymore you're just like mm-hmm. I know where I stand on this at least today I'm open to changing my mind and maybe in two years things will look very different for me and my family maybe I'm open to that but yeah right now I'm like I'm good and I've been through the experience enough times of like jumping on some bandwagon and then realizing that it was just like a short-term bandwagon like it was something yeah. trendy some diet some whatever and it wasn't helpful and so now I'm just like I don't know most most of the time the answer is just like intuitively what feels right (laughs) how does your body feel when you consider your options what did we do 200 years ago yeah (laughs) everything is just so complicated now but I I agree I've I feel like when you are on this journey I agree you you almost have to get over that initial hump of like being really stressed about everything and and feeling like you have to immediately change your lifestyle every time you come across new information without just taking a pause to think about it. But it goes back to this conversation um, that I feel like I've had before on here about like when it comes to living um, in a low toxic or non-toxic way. And it's like, well, the stress about that is also toxic. So you have to find balance and learn not to freak out every time you come across new information that maybe doesn't align with something that you're doing because that stress and freak out moment is also toxic and you can't live your life that way. Like I could, you know, be super upset and triggered and on the defense every time I read a stupid post about how Chick-fil-A, I don't think you'll have Chick-fil-A in Canada, do you? Okay. Chick-fil-A though. It's the best. And I love Chick-fil-A and I, my family goes to Chick-fil-A like a couple times a month and it's not going to kill us and we feel fine and we eat really healthy the rest of the time. And I could be really upset every time I read those stupid posts about Chick-fil-A and how bad it is for me, but I'm not going to, cause I'm like, okay, you know what? It might not be really great for me. I know there's some non-ideal ingredients on there in there, but we get joyful. We're, we have joy from going to Chick-fil-A as a family. It's something that we enjoy doing and it reduces our stress. And I'm not going to increase my stress and be so rigid in my ideals that we don't let loose a little bit and have Chick-fil-A. Like that's just one example. That's probably a really big example for me um, because that to me would cause more stress and issues than just going to Chick-fil-A. Yeah, totally. And it's, I mean, there's really cool studies about, um, like showing that it's likely that the like our stress response. So if we're eating Chick-fil-A and we're thinking, oh my gosh, this is so bad for me. This is so inflammatory. I can't believe I'm eating this. I'm so horrible. I'm so bad. I'm going to get fat, whatever the narrative that you might have about it is like that actually produces a higher inflammatory response than the person mm. who goes and enjoys it. There's also studies that show that like people who are really have like really strong community connection so connection is actually like our biggest safety cue it's the thing that'll bring us into a ventral vagal state more than anything else so when people have that really consistent connection and they eat shit food they actually don't have increased rates of health issues Mm. so it's like yeah the food's important i'm all about quality and all of that stuff but it seems like everything now and it it is kind of cool especially in like the alternative health and like chronic illness and you can just look talking about toxicity and all of that stuff in that whole world they really are shifting to like looking at the role that the nervous system plays and how like yeah it's like why can one person live in a moldy house and be totally fine and not the next person right and why can one person get bit by a tick 
no symptoms and the next person has symptoms, even though they might both test for positive for bacteria. So there's something else, like there's something deeper than the pathogen or the toxin or the inflammatory food that's actually creating disease. And it seems to be our stress response, right? Like how regulated are we? So if you go to Chick-fil-A with your family and you're connected and you're having fun, like you, you may not actually even be having an increase in inflammatory cytokines. So it might be totally yeah. fine. It might be that like just as healthy as any other meal that you cook at home, but that doesn't maybe bring you as much joy, but it's more yeah. nourishing. Yeah. <laughs> Totally it's quite- we have joy when we cook at home too, but Chick-fil-A is, you know, <laughs> yeah. we all have our little things, our yeah. little treats. Um, yeah. That is so interesting. I actually did recently hear about that research that shows your mindset when you're eating certain food actually can contribute to what you're experiencing in your body. And I just think that is so fascinating. And I want to dig more into that. Um, let's move on. Let's move back to the to sleep training, to the topic. So you describe the autonomic nervous system. And the states of the autonomic nervous system. Can you kind of walk us through what is happening during um, during sleep training to a baby's nervous system? And also want to clarify here, because I know everybody kind of has a different definition of what sleep training is. So I think I'm really talking about non-responsive sleep training. So any amount of time that you're purposefully leaving a baby to cry when they're dysregulated. Um And if you have like a more specific definition that you want to mention, feel free to do that. But can you walk us through what is happening there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I'm on board. I've read your your definition and I would say that it's similar to how I see it. I think it's like anything that um, tells the baby that they're alone with what they're they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So I know like there's like Janet Lansbury. I think this is her idea. I haven't, I, I haven't really aligned with a lot of her work. So I haven't paid attention for a long time, but like, I remember someone who was following her idea, like, like pat their baby. And it was the concept was like showing their baby that they can handle it. So it's like, you stayed right next to them and yes, they didn't like it. They wanted to be picked up but you showed them that they could fall asleep on their own. I, that did not feel good to me at the time because my, my baby was about the same age as the one that I was sort of like observing <laughs> going through this. And I was like, yeah, that's, and it wouldn't have worked. My son was just, he was one of those babies that like, it wouldn't have mattered if I was, if I was going to sleep train him and I tried, like he would have been the one that literally never gave up, like just never stopped screaming. He just was, he was not someone who was going to sleep even in a bassinet right next to me. Like he, my kids too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do to pause. I, I agree. I haven't aligned with most of Janet Lansbury's uh, views and beliefs on sleep and sleep training. I like some, I like a lot of her stuff. I don't agree with all of it. Um, but what I do think is missing a lot of times from these ideas, especially her kind of, what is she, is she R R I E Rye, whatever it's called. That's kind of her philosophy, like parenting philosophy. I think it's called Rye. Um, But I think what context is often missing there is the nervous system and that not every baby is the same. So while standing there patting a baby might work for one baby and it might, they might feel safe and they might feel, they start to feel calm and that's enough support for other babies that maybe have more dysregulated nervous systems. They have other things going on that make them more highly sensitive. They're going to need more support. And so maybe you're about to talk about that. I don't know. Maybe I just interrupted you, but I think that's an important thing that people like Janet Lansbury maybe don't consider. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like the big thing is um, like, well, yeah, it's around respect, right? Respectful parenting or whatever it is. I can't remember what RE, is it REI? I don't know. Whatever. What I think it's, it's RIE, but I can't, it's like res- something infant. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, infant education I don't know 
I get it. Like the, I, I get some of it, the idea of like not treating, especially when it comes to childhood. Like I think I would align more now with my five-year-old and encouraging more independence and like showing them like, yeah, you can do this. Like if you just work at it, you're going to get better at this skill. Yeah. Like, I'm on board with that. But like babies don't need, I don't think, to be encouraged to be independent <laughs> at all. Um, at least before, I don't even know. I would say before the age of three, personally. But um, yeah, like I think that she does miss the, the idea of what's going on in terms of the nervous system. I don't know why we're pushing for independence so early. I get the idea of, yeah, like not treating anybody as if they're incapable because I'm all about that and it comes back to like that whole personal responsibility conversation too like I don't like a lot of some of the narrative that's going on in like social justice culture because it does feel very like infantilizing and disrespectful and telling people that you know you can't handle hearing this word and that word and you can't handle mm-hmm. this conversation and nobody should do this around you and it's like okay people aren't <laughs> that weak you know and, and right. but when we force these ideas they do get weaker so I think that's maybe her philosophy and where she's coming from is like she doesn't want to give children the impression that they can't do something you know um but yeah there's a lot of things that influence the nervous system so um recently there's some stuff coming out showing that like a the dad stress response actually gets passed down through sperm which is really interesting that's pretty new Mm. and obviously the mom has a big impact in terms of wiring like while the baby's in the womb, um, the birth experience, genetics, toxicity, nutrition, like deficiency, mm-hmm. all of these things. Um, it, it can be alignment stuff. Like, uh, you know, I, that some babies have, like when you have like torticollis, like anything can throw off your autonomic nervous system. It, the nerves exist yeah. from the brainstem all the way down through like the the core of the body right so even anything that impacts the, like the structure of the body can, can make the nervous system a little bit more hypervigilant. so I think that's like similar to sleep training we're just like not looking at the child that's in front of us you know we're right. looking at like a protocol yeah we um, want rules we want rules and to put all babies in in a box which I think is, inter- is kind of funny because they, we are actually literally trying to put them in a box called a crib um yeah. but yeah we're not paying like we're not paying attention to the individual baby and their needs we're wanting to box all babies in lump them into a category babies at two months need exactly this kind of support babies at six months need exactly this kind of support and we just can't do that no totally and it'll I mean yeah going into this next pregnancy and like having another baby and it's just like not that I followed I didn't follow rules necessarily but I you know I had the apps around leaps and I tried this and I tried that and the swaddles and like I was like okay if I had I would literally I probably would have improved his sleep just by not stressing about trying to make him sleep like his my friend's babies were sleeping or whatever right like I was I and and what happened when I was looking at for all these answers and solutions was like, I was doing the right things. Like I was carrying my baby 24 hours a day. He was sleeping right next to me. Like, I was doing all the things he did need me to do, but I was doing it with anxiety because mm-hmm. it, like, all the messaging I got was, you know, that he should be this and he should be that. Plus I was sleep deprived. So that, that can increase your level of anxiety and dysregulation in itself. And it, I'd just be so curious to see like, would he have, like adjusted and regulated sooner had I just been totally okay with what was happening 
you know, yeah. had I not been at all, like, and I didn't really let the comments bother me, but yeah, like I was looking for ways to, I don't know, speed up the process. Cause it's a, it's, it is a hard time and like you're mm-hmm. desperate and, you know, um, I think if there, you know, and this is why I love your page so much and the work that you do is cause it's like, there's permission for this to be okay for your baby to sleep. Right. Through to wake nine times a night <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's like yeah it's hard but it's okay like there's nothing there's no problem to solve and and it, even though the goal of that that message is not to make baby sleep longer I think there's probably a link like as soon as mom calms down baby calms down like they're picking up that's how their nervous system knows whether they're safe or dangerous or whether it's safe or dangerous for them right so as soon as they, they send safety they usually sleep um, assuming there's no other like medical issue going on or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Remember what the initial question so, was. So <laughs> that's okay. We kind of got off on a tangent. Okay. Yeah. So what during non-responsive sleep training, oh, yeah. what is happening to an infant's nervous system? Yeah. So, I mean, before like babies don't actually have much thinking happening until around three, like before that we have these lower break brain regions so the brain stem and the limbic system, which is like highly emotional, um, but they're not thinking. <laughs> so they don't know like, oh, my mom's just in the other room. It's all good. She'll be back in the morning. They can't, right. they can't do that. All they know is in this moment, I'm alone. And they instinctively get that they need to be close to their caregivers to survive, right? So, um, I mean, connection provides that like comfort and security, but it, it is also their only way to make it out of this in this world alive. So it's quite terrifying to be left alone as an infant and there's no way that they can understand why it's happening. So usually, right, most babies will scream and cry. The length of time is is so unique to each baby, Um, but that's their sympathetic response. So they're going into fight flight and they're seeking, like they're calling out for you to come back and help, right? They're, um, or at the very least, you can just see it as like, that's their stress response. That's their only way to communicate a stress response. And that goes on for however long it goes on. And if the parent doesn't return, like we run out of energy to stay in a sympathetic state. That happens in adults too. So when you look at things like adrenal fatigue, basically that's usually an adult that's like been living in a chronic sympathetic state and eventually their nervous system says like I have to take you out because you need to preserve energy just to survive so I'm going to pull you into a shutdown state and that's where you feel very like lethargic and fatigued and you can't get things done and you're sleeping a lot and all that stuff so babies do that in this like sleep training experience too their nervous system is like hey we can't keep you here forever so we're just going to take you out and this is when they like quote unquote fall asleep, right? And it's not, it's not actually solid sleep. So when you look at the sleep pattern of somebody who sleeps in that shutdown state, so whether it's because an adult has adrenal fatigue or because they're very depressed, um, which is also related to the shutdown state, the sleep is like this dead to the world sleep. There's not like that nice pattern of like light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep which we need to have to have like that, all of the benefits of a, of a healthy sleep. Um, so those babies are, and there's not obviously not a ton of studies on this, but this is what we know happens in adults who are in shutdown sleep. The assumption is, uh, my assumption is that it would happen with babies too, because they're not sleeping from a place of, okay, I'm safe and cared for, and I can just like let my body do what it needs to do. It's like a collapse, like a giving up. Um, it might 
change over time, I, I think, I would hope, but I'm not quite sure. But at least though in the initial process, like that's what's happening when the baby finally stops calling out and maybe does close their eyes, it's, it's like a nervous system collapse. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that there was research um, with adults in sleeping in a shutdown state that they don't, that they actually don't have normal sleep stages. And it's interesting because um, in, we have research that shows us like sleep training research that shows us that babies who are sleep trained, sleep trained, don't wake significantly less than babies who wait. Babies who are sleep trained don't wake significantly less than babies who are not sleep trained. So I'm assuming that that would be like more long-term after that initial kind of shutdown state that maybe their uh, sleep becomes more normal, but they're still waking. So then, so my understanding of this is that then you're, you've basically now taught your baby that if they signal for you, nothing will happen. You won't come. So they, they stop signaling for the most part. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So we were really adaptive. It's so fascinating. So our nervous system is like so much more intelligent than I think we've ever thought um, before. So even though there isn't a lot happening way up in the cortical brain and to like, for this baby to sit and, you know, really think about like, oh, should I cry this time? Because last time nothing happened, but maybe this time something will. like that. That's not happening. But that automatic adaptation is, right? So it's sort of like tied one thing to another. I scream, nothing happens. Okay, I'm going to stop screaming because there's no point. Um, Babies do the same thing, even if uh, they can sense that their parent doesn't like a specific emotion, right? So when they express an emotion, and that can happen as young as six months, babies express something and the mom cringes or the mom like moves away from the baby or puts the baby down because your mom can't tolerate it. Baby will stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because they stop feeling that thing, just because they want to stay connected more than anything else in the world, right? They need, they know they need it for survival and they definitely want it for um, a sense of security. So they'll do what they need to do, including, yeah, just not, not showing their caregiver what they're experiencing internally. Yeah. I get asked a lot about either quote unquote gentle sleep training, which can mean a number of different things, but it often means um, these more gradual extinction approaches where you're not leaving your baby to cry all at once until they just stop, but you're maybe giving a time limit. So letting them cry for a minute and then going in to check on them and then letting them cry for three minutes and then going to check on them and then letting them cry for five minutes and so on and so forth. Would you say that there is any difference in the way the nervous system is responding to that kind of pattern or is it pretty much the same? It's probably different. Like it would be less stressful to have like the intermittent check-ins um but ultimately if it like again quote quote, works um it probably still is a shutdown response like it's not because the baby's like oh okay so she my mom comes back it's all good I can I can feel safe and I can sleep it's still stressful it's still like not ideal I would say for the infant nervous system to have that experience it's also like you know just like we've been talking about with questioning some of the things that we do like I always just try to frame it as like how bizarre would it be to you if you were with your partner and very upset because of whatever it is something happened in your adult life that was stressful you got fired from your job and your partner was like okay I'm going to give you 30 seconds of attention and then I'm getting back to my football game then I'll come back in five minutes and give you another 30 seconds like it's like a very bizarre message to send to any human regardless of age and I, I think because we we don't or maybe we know that they can't think about it that it's like it doesn't matter it's not going to register 
but it does it wires at the level of the nervous system and in that like limbic brain which essentially controls everything that we do so we we also tend to value thinking so much more than sensing and feeling but those things run our lives <laughs> those things run yeah. our thoughts right so it kind of, it really does start like the nervous system is sort of like the root of all things it's the nervous system then the physical body then the emotional brain and then sort of way up top is is where thinking happens and it's the thinking is a reflection of what's going on sort of beneath the surface so it really matters like how we're wiring these these babies in these more subconscious or unconscious ways um, even though they can't consciously explain that it's bizarre for them, <laughs> you know, that mom, you only come in every five minutes or whatever yeah. are, you know? Yeah. And I, I, whenever I make those comparisons between how we treat our babies and our children to how we would treat our partner, I always get the, the argument of, well, their babies are not the same as adults and our relationship is different. And I'm like, yeah, that's also the point. Babies actually are much more vulnerable for the most part than adults. And most adults have some capacity to self-regulate and babies don't. So that's even more important than to think about how we're treating babies. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole piece around self-regulation is so interesting because that, you know, from a polyvagal perspective, we don't see kids being able to self-regulate like at all, really, until the age of five soothe perhaps yeah so people will use the argument well my baby sucks their thumb so they're soothing themselves and it's like soothing is different than real regulation like yeah, soothing can you explain that sorry you probably are I'm just interrupting you can you sure. explain that in a little bit more detail because I get that question a lot and I explain it in the best way I know how to but I don't feel like I have all of the language and expertise in that area to make it really clear yeah yeah um and it is it's mixed up all the time online like i've even seen a video not long ago <laughs> where someone i don't know what her background was i don't think it was anything like i don't think she's educated in the field or anything but she was sort of saying that um like drinking alcohol eating doritos um like scrolling through TikTok. Those are all nervous system regulation tools, just like breath work and just like movement and these things. I'm like, no, they're not. <laughs> those are soothing. So those are things yeah. we do usually when either we don't know like what our regulation options are or we're so distressed, we just need to bring down the level of distress a little bit, right? So soothing is sort of like, it doesn't actually bring us into a complete ventral state. It doesn't discharge our survival energy. It usually involves a little bit more like numbing, like getting, getting a sense of like distance from our internal experience, but it doesn't solve the problem. Like it doesn't um, resolve anything long-term. It's just like a, like a comfort blanket <laughs> kind of, and there's nothing wrong with soothing. Like, I think we'll, we'll always need a bit of both. There are times where still like, yeah, like I'm not going to, I'm not choosing my healthiest regulation options because I'm too stressed or anxious about something. So I am choosing distraction. Like I'm choosing to soothe. It's also very different when you have an awareness of it, when you're saying like, I am going to binge watch Netflix tonight instead of doing what I would normally do before bed or whatever, or I am going to eat the ice cream before bed, you know, those types of things. If you do it with awareness, it has, it registers very differently. Um, and it even actually can result in regulation because you're like monitoring how your symptoms change. So when you're an adult, you can, you can discharge your survival stress simply by having the capacity to observe it. You don't necessarily have to go and do the breath work or go to a yoga class or like connect with a friend and have a conversation. Like you can just be like, okay, I'm just going to sit and watch my energy change as I 
as I observe my internal experience. So with babies, it's like the, the thumb sucking or fingers or whatever else they do um, to soothe. Is, it's not that they're regulating in the same way. The only way babies can regulate is with co-regulation. Like there's just, there's no self-regulation at all. So the, the things that they do independently is really just to bring in some level of comfort so that can, they can survive and tolerate what's going on. Um, but when they're picked up by their caregiver or nursed or bottle fed or gone, you know, whatever it is, connecting with their caregiver, that's like supporting the ventral vagal activity. Mm. Um, I was going to say something else about this and now I'm blanking. Oh yeah. And then, you know, we, we don't actually see kids being able to truly self-regulate at all until around the age of five. And that's like just starting. And for some kids, it's not till 10, right? Yeah. So depending on how sensitive their nervous systems are, depending on what's happened in their lives, if they've had, you know, maybe they've had accidents or there's been divorces, they've been exposed to a lot of conflict um, or yeah, even like some of these things like, like Lyme disease, mold toxicity, all those things can also like hijack the nervous system. So there's so many things that can make a kid more sensitive and need more like consistent long-term co-regulation before they'll build those skills for self-regulation. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I really don't know why <laughs> it even became a thing. And I guess they usually do say self-soothe. Like when they talk about, they do, they do say self-soothe, but I'm like, that's not a good thing that is really like it's kind of synonymous with celebrating somebody who like downs a bottle of wine every single night not that I'm judging that so I get why that happens um but we're not assuming that that's like a healthy way to live right right yeah. Well, and even when, so in talking about in terms of when a child will be able to self-regulate, why are we asking this question? Like, why do we want an age where, okay, at age six, your child can self-regulate because it, it's not the way it works. First of all, I always tell parents, our focus shouldn't be on that question. Well, when should I be able to expect my child to do this, but instead should be on, okay, what level of co-regulation and support does my child need right now? Because it can also change even from day to day. I mean, I talk about this all the time. Like even for me as an adult, there are days where I am nourished and I have moved in the right ways to support my body and my nervous system. I've done the things I need to do for my mental health and I'm having just an overall good day. And if something comes my way that's stressful, I am much more able to self-regulate. Whereas maybe I am extremely dysregulated. I haven't been eating well. I haven't moved my body. People, my children have been super loud and then, and overwhelming to me, overstimulating. And then something comes my way and I may have a really hard time self-regulating in that moment. And it's even more true for kids who don't have as much control over those factors that help to regulate their nervous system. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I have this sort of theory on, what like what's going on there because so many of us were raised by parents who like did have that advice to like push towards independence um punish be behavior that was often punish emotions <laughs> um right we, we were, were really uncomfortable with our children doing and expressing things that we weren't allowed to do and express so I think that's some of the urgency is like it's so uncomfortable when and this is sort of going into parts work and I'll explain that possibly later on but it's like we have these like younger parts of us that witness our children being able to cry or scream or throw tantrums or show us their anger or not be sleep trained or whatever it's like are those younger parts get really pissed why do they get that kind of attention 
So then other parts of us feel that urgency of like, I need them to be different because if they're calm and, or if they're sleeping through the night, if they're not bothering me, then my system feels a little bit better, but that's more avoidance. Like that's like avoiding your stuff and hoping your kids will, will do that for you, will change so that you can continue to avoid your stuff. Um, so that's the way I think about it is like, and, and I think this is often the missing piece when it comes to starting to do things differently than what we got is we all know or a lot of us know now it's like okay we're looking at attachment theory we're looking at these different ways of parenting we're looking at not being so punitive and we're also talking about how hard it is and I think that's like the missing link it's like it's hard because we're not offering our systems our psyches that are still holding on to some of our painful childhood memories the same kind of compassion and attention to like help heal those wounds once we do heal them, it becomes a lot more comfortable to give our children what we want to be able to give them, you know, and then there isn't that sense of like, I need this phase to end, or I need them to change, or I need them to go away, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have to also apologize if any of y'all can hear there's pounding upstairs, because I'm in the basement working and my mother in law is watching the kids upstairs. And I think that she's pounding meat on the counter and it's very very loud so um I've been trying to mute when I'm not talking but if y'all can hear that I'm sorry um <laughs> okay I wanted to revisit so we're talking about this I this difference between self-soothing and self-regulating and I think the thing is is that most people especially people that are encouraging or advocating for sleep training and they're saying that you need to teach your baby to self-soothe they simply just don't have this background information they don't actually understand what self-regulation is versus what is self-soothing and they're using those terms interchangeably so my belief on this is that when they're saying self-soothing they're really talking about what we know as self-regulation um and so I talk about this all the time that Dr. Tom Anders is the one who actually introduced the phrase uh, or the term self-soothing when it comes to babies. And that was never meant to describe a baby who is crying and signaling to their parent. When he used the term self-soothing, he basically found that there are babies who will sleep and they'll wake up and maybe they'll toss and turn a little bit, but they'll pretty much put themselves right back to sleep without signaling. And those are the soothers. And then the rest of the babies will usually signal for support from their parent. And those um, are the, the signalers. And so I'm curious about your thoughts about maybe what is happening within the nervous system for those babies who are less likely to signal, not that they never signal, but maybe they just need more to happen in order for them to be stressed and signal. Like, what is the difference there? Is that like a nervous system difference between those babies? I always talk about it's maybe like a temperamental thing. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things like, I, I don't know. I'm, as you can tell, like, because I got, I do have a lot of certifications and I think it's just because I like, I like to do my friends joke and say like all the things, like I like to be like, have my, um, I don't know. I just have an interest in a lot of different ways of looking at being a human essentially. So, you know, you could even bring in things like astrology, the Enneagram, like whatever you're into. And, and that could have an influence if you believe in that potentially. But yeah, I think that there are just like, I was a particularly independent kid. Like I was just sort of like, I slept right through the night. I think my mom said like around eight weeks, like it was just sort of like, I'm good guys. Like I'm all right. And my brother was a total opposite. He was like, he needed, and I think that was really difficult for my parents, especially at a time when there wasn't a lot of access to information, not as much as now, or at least not as like readily available. So they were kind of like, oh, like, 
Jenna was super easy. What are we going to do with this, this kid who's really like highly sensitive and like has a lot of emotions and doesn't sleep well and all this stuff. It was quite confusing for them. And it's just like, we, I don't really know why, like genetically we have a lot of the same things. Was my mom more stressed with him because she did have a toddler at the time? I don't know. Like, I don't know. There's just, there's so many inputs uh, that impact just our our psyche, our nervous system, and change the way that we respond to our environment, you know? Um, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. Even, I don't even know what, like, the biggest thing would be. I just, I think the reality yeah. is we're all so unique. Like, yeah, all- I agree. I agree. And I think the issue is, is that in our society right now that is so focused on sleep training and, and changing babies is that we really put the kind of those quote-unquote soother babies on a pedestal as like, this is the norm. This is how babies should be. This is the ideal behavior. And while it might be ideal for us as parents, because obviously it's easier and it's more convenient for us because we'll likely get more sleep. And that's, that's important. That's a big deal. Um, but it doesn't mean that our babies who are signalers and who cry for us a lot and get their needs met. It doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong or bad that we need to train them out of or teach them out of. And I think that is the issue is that the, the, the current like common ideology is that if you do have a baby who signals to you a lot that you need to teach them not to, and you need to change them when in reality, it's often just something that we don't fully understand, but it's either a temperament or a personality issue, or maybe that baby who is a soother is just, their nervous system's just a little bit more chill. They're able to like stay in this chill mode more often. And that's not a bad thing. Neither of them are bad. They're just different. Yeah, And we don't think like, most people don't think like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like partly why I like some of these, even though it's not really my thing, like the, like human design, all of that stuff, but like human design specifically, we'll talk about like people who are, who need a little bit, they need those down periods, right? They can't just always be like producing, producing, producing. And it's like, both can be very successful. I, I really like looking at it for the for the purpose of like entrepreneurship, right? Because there's so many, you know, we get all this advice online about how to do it well and how to do it right and who's going to be successful and who's not, whatever. And it's like, when you look at it from that perspective, it's just like some people need to have a, like a period of productivity and then a large period of rest and restoration. And, and then they can come back and do it again. And they can be just as wonderful at what they do as the person who can get up every single day and just like give her, right? It, it doesn't really... Um, one is not better than the other. They're just two totally different ways to operate a business. <laughs> so I think we can look at kids with that uh, lens too. It's like, and, and I, this will be the, my first experience having two children. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to really see what it's like to have, I'm, I'm assuming what'll be two very different personalities in my home, you know, and, I, and I'm sure it is a bit of a shock to parents, like even, and it will be for me, regardless of what I know about this stuff. Um, it's like, I know how to parent my son. Like I've gotten to know him very well. I really get what he needs. It's really predictable for me at this point. So my nervous system likes that. (laughs) Okay. I pretty much know how he's going to respond to most things. It's great. Um, and I'm going to have to like, it's going to be like brand new being a brand new parent. Um, I'm sure some things will feel a little easier. I'll feel a little less stressed about certain things, but really it's, it's like a whole, it's a whole new ball game. It's like getting a brand new job or something (laughs) you're entering a very different relationship with a very different being um and yeah trying to make everybody the same I think is a really big mistake 
yeah, it usually just causes more stress for everybody because you're trying to fit your baby into this mold that they can't fit into. And what happens when you like putting, you know, those little shape sorter with the blocks, it's like trying to fit a square block into the triangle or the triangle block, like it's not going to happen. And so you're just going to get frustrated. Um, and I think, so that's why I try to help parents shift their perspective from, okay, what age should my baby be self self-regulating and putting themselves to sleep and not needing my support to instead what does my child need right now? What are they signaling to me? What are they communicating to me that they need? Because parents need to know that whatever you are doing, whatever you are needing to do to support your child is not harming them. It's your, if you're meeting their needs, if you're responding and part of, part of being responsive is not responding to your child if they're doing okay and they don't need you, right? It's not smothering them if they're not telling you, Hey, I need you. So that's part of responsiveness that I think sometimes parents get confused about. Responsiveness isn't always just being right on top of your child at any time. Um, it's responding to what your child is telling you they need. And as long as you're doing that, you're doing the right thing for your child. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I've been sort of critical of, um, not so much attachment theory, but like attachment parenting, because it is really like co-sleep, breastfeed, baby wear. And it's like, you know what? Some babies like really do are quite clear in their communication that they do want to sleep alone. Like that they do yeah. better, they have more restful sleep when they're not being held. Um, or they don't, if, they, if they're going to be in the carrier, they want to be forward facing. They don't like being like all tucked in. They're just curious and they're ready to see the environment. And so, yeah, like that's, that's real attachment is like not forcing some, that list of rules either. Like, you know, and like my next child may not want to co-sleep. I, in my mind, I assume that's what we're going to do because that's what we had to do last time. But like, yeah, this baby might be pretty vocal about like I need some space I get too hot whatever it is and it's honoring that and like not not trying to follow anybody's list of rules because that'll always lead you in the wrong direction if you're looking anywhere but your child for your, your answers for the most part like they're going to be wrong you know like certainly mm-hmm. you know, support and you know what there there's obviously circumstances where you know your child can't tell you like I have an ear infection maybe you do need to, to get someone to check that out or whatever right. it is um, but for the most part, when it comes to your relationship to your child and things like sleep and feeding and wet diapers and the, the really basic stuff, it's like, just look at the kid in front of you. You'll know what to do. Yeah. And I think that, you know, res- uh, being responsive and interpreting our child's communication isn't always easy. And it's the reason I think it's really not easy is because we're being told all of this other information. We're being given guides and books and rules and mommy blogs and Instagram pages that have these rules on them that we are focusing too much on. So we're really not able to tune in to our child. And when we let those other external things go and just pay attention to our child it does get easier but it is a skill like it is a skill that it does take time to develop that of learning what your child is telling you especially before they're verbal yes totally yeah I know and this can like spill over into so many things like there was even a time where I was like oh I should be homeschooling I really but my son is like the most social butterfly in the world like he it would be so horrible for him if it was just him and I during the day like he loves being with other kids and being able to chat and he almost needs to be with a bigger group of kids too because he's so chatty and so playful that like kids see a lot of kids will get like worn out by him so he needs to be able to like bounce around like right Mm -hmm. and um but you know especially you know in the last couple years and there's been criticisms of everything going on in public schools and whatever it was like oh I should really be like trying to navigate this and find a way to do this better and I'm like wait a minute 
that wouldn't be better for him. He wouldn't do well um, in that in that setting um, with me and, and just focusing on like one-on-one learning or whatever. And I know there's more to homeschooling than that and there is connection and you can get together with groups and stuff. But yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. People mm-hmm. will be such advocates for what worked for their family and like um, make just the wrong assumption that it applies everywhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so back to sleep training, you walked us through kind of what is happening in the nervous system. So in terms of like damage or negative impact, does it cause damage to infants? Does it cause trauma? And is that trauma permanent if it does cause trauma? What are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I'm so, I don't know if it's because like, I'm concerned about the overuse of the word trauma, that I'm like really hesitant to call much like many things trauma Mm -hmm. um it certainly could for one system be traumatic right like it it, you know if that that baby cried for 90 minutes straight and it was like this long process um and the, the the child happened to be one of those really sensitive little beings like that absolutely could be traumatic and we do i mean the the really like the most commonly used definition of trauma is like anything that overwhelms a nervous system's capacity to cope and sleep training i mean does fit that criteria but like a lot of things flood our nervous systems uh, mm-hmm. particularly as adults like things will overwhelm us that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's registered as a trauma so i would say like it's probably still like individual like case by case and it's and, and you know tra- trauma is never permanent so even if it is even if we're going to throw it into that category like it can it does it can be resolved so essentially usually they'll say something it'll be like three to six hundred uh repetitions of like the opposite message will undo that first wiring so Mm. let's say you sleep trained and now your child is five and you're like oh my gosh I wish I wouldn't have done that and I am noticing that maybe he withdraws when he cries if if he feels like he has to go to his bedroom every time he's upset or he doesn't want to connect when he's in this state or whatever um if you start to provide that like responsive um caregiving now over and over and over and over again like it does rewire it it gives enough of a what we call a disconfirming experience that that gets changed like that eventually that child system gets like okay that thing that I previously thought to be true or you know felt to be true appears to no longer be true so I can that can be erased like the, that neural pathway can essentially just disintegrate I don't need it now I have this new one that tells me mom comes when I'm sad or mom comes when I'm scared or whatever so nothing uh in my realm i believe is is permanent can all be healed and and with kids i mean it may not sound easy (laughs) to like be that responsive that consistently um that many times but i'm like you might be surprised to see how many times you have the opportunity to be responsive throughout your child's life like yeah because i mean that would be responsiveness during the day too right it's not just at night because the sleep training happens at night it's any responsiveness right yeah exactly yeah yeah. So it's totally yeah. terrible. Um, yeah. I get asked a lot, you know, I sleep trained, I regret it. What do I do to repair? And I usually tell parents, you're probably doing exactly what you need to be doing to repair. Like my opinion on that, and maybe you have different thoughts is that there's really nothing special or extra that you need to do to, if you're regretting a sleep training decision, you just need to now be present and responsive to your child, which most parents who are regretting a sleep training decision are already doing that automatically. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Okay. I might like 
I'm trying, I'm thinking about something that a mental health professional told me about sleep training a while ago. And I'm trying to think of the exact words she used. Cause I wanted to hear your thoughts about it and whether that's true or how you would explain it, but forgive me. Cause I might kind of butcher what she said, but basically it was something like she, she was walking through the mechanism of non-responsive sleep training. And so an infant is crying and, um, it if a parent responds to them, they're like stressed, they're anxious. If a parent responds to them, it sends a signal to their body that, okay, this was like a safe experience. Like I'm safe right now. Um, but if the parent doesn't respond to them, they get more increasingly dysregulated and that somehow impacts their like stress tolerance. So she was talking about how it could be that babies who have these non-responsive sleep training experiences um, become these adults that any little thing, like any little stressor on the system sends you into overdrive dysregulation. And that always interested me because that's, I'm very much like that. Like a door can slam and my body will be like, like I'm in stress mode. I'm in like fight or flight mode. And so I'm wondering, is that kind of an accurate thing or what am I missing there? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. So, um, you know, it's like that phrase that people use, like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Is not exactly true. <laughs> so mm. like things that we didn't choose that happened to us that did overwhelm our systems will actually shrink our capacity for stress. So um, it like it puts us into a place where we're dropping down into our survival states more easily, more frequently, and sometimes in like a very stuck way, like in like, a, I have to live my life in a state of constant hypervigilance. I have to be looking for threats all the time. And then when a threat does come, like you, you're already not accessing many of your safety pathways. So it's just like a full big response, right? Whereas when you have like little stressors, like I said earlier, that are like met with regulation or met with a solution or resolution that does build our capacity, right? It's like, okay, I, I went through something hard. It ended okay. I can handle hard things. Wonderful. So now there's like, I'm back in my, my ventral vagal state and I have that memory of like something difficult happened and it ended okay. That means I can handle difficult things. Yeah. So I think about it sometimes in the same way that we look at like, so I call them like chosen versus unchosen stressors. So this is where in nervous, the nervous system world, we talk about like building capacity for stress. So this is why things like a vigorous workout can be really helpful. One of the things that makes it really helpful is that it's a choice. So when we choose to do something hard, that is a very different thing than when someone's, like if you're going for a run versus someone's chasing you with a gun, like mm -hmm. the gun chase is gonna decrease your capacity because it's terrifying and you didn't choose it. But when you're choosing to do the hard run, that's increasing your capacity. It's like, I'm choosing to do a hard thing and I come home and I celebrate myself because I did it, that's great. So that's another way of looking at it is like you can, begin to build your capacity for stress by choosing to do hard things consistently. And you can even think about that with kids, like helping them, especially, you know, toddlerhood and beyond, like looking at, um, you know, like not letting, you know, not, not letting them, but encouraging them not to give up on like a puzzle or whatever, um, because they might want to. Kids often do get overwhelmed really easily when so much is new to them and newness always registers as a threat, right? Um, so when they're trying something new and it's starting to get stressful and they want to give up, you might just push them a little and a little, and then they can have that experience of like, oh, I did this hard thing and it ended well. And now their capacity mm -hmm. grows. So, so they're not so activated by, you know, whatever, every little trip or fall or every little sound or, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, you can just see it as like 
things that that totally overwhelm us and things that we didn't choose will like be when they're beyond our capacity that'll actually decrease our capacity in the long run for stress and then yeah when we have these like stressors that have a good ending or that we've chosen then that that can increase our capacity which mm-hmm. again can change at any time like, we're very malleable in that way yeah that makes sense can we shift into talking about sleep training from a parent's perspective? Um, because I'm interested to know, like, what is the mechanism behind, I mean, I think I know, but I want to hear your thoughts behind why a lot of parents really have negative experiences with sleep training. Like it really is stressful to them. Um, you know, I, I've talked to so many families who, and parents who or moms specifically who were having postpartum depression or anxiety. And they really say it's because of all of the sleep training stuff. Like the pressure to leave my child alone to cry is what exacerbated if, and if not exacerbated actually caused my anxiety, my depression. And actually that was me. Like that was my experience as well. So I'm curious to hear why that might be. It's so interesting because you so often hear the opposite, right? Like, oh, moms have that they need to work on their mental health. So they need to sleep train their kids so that they mm-hmm. can that. And I've always thought like, how could that be legit? Because I think of everything usually from that, like, you know, very basic, like we are mammals, like we have this, this, these things that are really wired into our DNA that we're supposed to do and not do. And so when we go against those instincts, like I can't imagine how there would be a benefit to that when it comes to mental health. Um, so yeah, when a baby cries, it is like, it is designed to activate our sympathetic response because we want to run to them. Like we're supposed to get like worked up when we hear that, um, within reason, you know, we don't want to panic every time we hear a peep and, and that might be the case for some of us. So we can work through that, but yeah, the, the crying is meant to activate our stress response. And so if our, we're listening to our baby cry night after night, after night, like we are causing our own dysregulation. Um, and I've heard like people who do it, um, not even necessarily in the context of like, they regret it, but that just, just saying like, I had to leave, like my husband had to do it and I had to leave. Mm-hmm. And I think that does make some sense to me that like, that it would be harder on women than men. I think we're, there's sort of that, um, tendency for moms and babies to be closer in the first couple of years. And then it shifts now dad, you know, dad can be a little bit more, sometimes even more involved than mom when it comes to toddlerhood, because they're like, so on par often dad wanting to be rough and tumble and kid being ready to play like that and mom's like all right I'm good that's not my Mm -hmm. thing um so it makes sense to me that that would feel better in a in a dad system than a mom's because mom like we're just I mean we have brain changes things really do shift for us because of hormones and all kinds of things um where we're really just meant to be focusing entirely on keeping this baby alive postpartum so so to work against those instincts to run to our baby to help them um whatever and in whatever way they need like yeah we would we would be intentionally activating our stress response and then I think there's probably because we are able to to create a narrative about what happened even if we're not doing it consciously, if we paid attention, there probably is a bit of a script playing internally around like, like I've done this horrible thing to my child, or I feel badly about myself, or, or maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel bad about this, but I do. And it just like would create a lot of inner conflict, you know, Yeah. which would yeah, yeah. show up in what we call these umbrella terms of like anxiety and depression. Yeah. 
I think that the problem is, is that um, like kind of mainstream mental health culture and doctors and mental health professionals that often women are getting referred to for their depression, anxiety in the postpartum period is that they're, it's very much mental health is medicalized and the body is compartmentalized into all of these different pieces. And so there's really not in the medical system, Western medical system specifically, there's not a um, holistic view of the human body and of mental health and how everything is really um, playing a role and impacting each other. And so mental health professionals are often, and doctors, pediatricians, whoever is all, is often like, well, you're depressed because you're sleep deprived and that's it. Just sleep deprivation. So once you get the sleep, it'll get better. But that's just realistically, sure, that might be the solution for some people, for some women. Um, but for many women, there's so much more to it because it's not just sleep for most of the time that's causing the depression or causing the anxiety. It's birth trauma and um, breastfeeding difficulties or issues or, um, you know, the hormonal changes, nutritional deficiencies, there's so much that could be causing it. And so when we're only addressing one little tiny piece of it, that's not really helpful to the vast majority of women. Totally. I totally agree. Yeah. It's, it is so, I don't know. I, I think we're starting, <laughs> I don't know. It takes a long time. And sometimes I, I have to remember that I have a skewed perspective because I, really do choose to expose myself to more alternative medicine and they they obviously see the body as a whole and they they look at like many many factors that uh would create any illness like whether we're looking at something physical or psychological we never assume or at least that realm of health never assumes that it's one thing like one trigger one problem one solution um so I don't know, I'm probably a little bit off in my um, assumption that maybe things are starting to shift. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to tell. I, I'm, I'm the same. I follow and expose myself to more of the kind of non-mainstream alternative health stuff. So I see it, but like when I jump back into the regular world and I get messages and comments from parents who are still being told this absolute garbage um, from their pediatrician or whoever. I just, I don't know. I don't know that it's changing, but I hope so. Um, And then what about, so even not from like a sleep training perspective, but parents who are distressed just by their, their, especially young children having needs crying, you know, um, it can be really hard to listen to your baby cry, even when you're making an effort to meet their needs. We don't always know what their needs are. Sometimes their needs aren't easy to be met if there's an underlying medical issue or a sensory thing um, or something like that. Why, Why is the cry, why is the distress of the child also so distressing to us? And then is there anything that we can do to kind of work through that? Because even, I mean, some parents just have a really hard time with being woken up three or four times a night by a cry, like that in and of itself is distressing even when they're responding to those cries. Yeah, totally. So I I have a few thoughts on that. One is, like I was saying, like it's meant to be stressful. Like we're supposed to get activated when we hear that so that we take action, we fight (laughs) or we flee or whatever we do we need to do for our child, we run to them. Um, I think another potential issue is like when we're starting to think about, try to be more responsive, we think that there's going to be like this uh, result, like, okay, well, if I just tend to them, then there won't be any more crying. We'll stop doing that. And that's not really the case, right? Like kids, even if they have really attuned caregivers, will still have a 90 minute tantrum. And it doesn't mean you're getting it wrong, but you're not meeting their need. It just means that they have a lot of survival energy in their system and they're getting it out. 
So I always tell parents like, you know, assuming that you've, you really considered all the things like, are they in pain? Is this a medical problem? Have I looked at that? Are they hungry? Do they, are they cold? Whatever. You looked at all the things and you have this screaming kid, you know, you can just kind of repeat to yourself better out than in. So if you try to, and even if you're doing it from like a really seemingly compassionate place of trying to like, trying to help them, but with the agenda in your mind of getting the crying to stop, then they might stop because the kids are so, they're so perceptive. So they really get when we have that urgency, when we have the desire for them to be quiet and they might just start to do that behaviorally, but not truthfully like not in their core they're not actually ready to be done screaming or crying or expressing themselves they're doing it so that we stay close right so you don't want that that stress that like excess cortisol you don't want all that staying inside so it's it's just always better out than in right like let them punch the pillow let them scream let them do what they need to do um and you can just stay right next to them you know Mm-hmm. beautiful video that was going around probably like a year ago now of this dad um doing that like just being there with this probably 18 month old little girl she just she was just losing it and he was just there and when she was kicking the floor he put her hands down just to make sure he didn't she didn't hurt her feet and um he was like just it was like you could tell he was like he was not worried about it it didn't it was sure had some activation just because I don't know that you could avoid it but it's like he knew that it was okay but she just needed to to get through this and then eventually she just came and like collapsed into his arms you know so I think that too like some of some of what we're talking about now can suggest to parents that like oh if your child is crying um that means you're not being responsive and then we're getting stressed because we have to find some solution it's like well kids just sometimes need to let that out they really do Well, you hear about these, like, I think one of the things that a lot of attack, like people that are are attachment parents or promoting attachment parenting, um, talk about a lot is like these like African tribes who carry their babies on their back and they're always with them and they never cry. And so you get the idea that babies aren't supposed to cry, but really that's not true. Like there might be many reasons why those babies don't cry as much, but I bet those babies cry. Sometimes babies are babies cry. There's a reason that they cry. It's not a bad thing that babies are crying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a function, right. And even like a lot of adults, it's so it's an interesting conversation, but adults who struggle to cry. um, And I was seeing this a lot in like when people were prescribed psych meds, like they, they, it would block their ability to cry. And that would actually be a really big problem for them. Like, like I need to cry. Like I just feel so numb without feeling these emotions and being able to express them. And that was like one of their biggest um, concerns with like the side effects, even if they were getting benefit from medication in other places. Mm. So like as adults, we know how good it feels to cry. Right. And um, for those yeah. of us that struggle to cry, it's like that we often almost like, I certainly have had this experience. I almost feel excited when I like start crying. Like, oh yes. Like I know yeah. how good it feels. I need to get this, this out. It's one of the best, um, I call them discharging activities. So just like, you know, we feel some stress relief when we do go for a walk or a run, it's because we're discharging some survival stress. Crying might be like one of the best tools we have to discharge survival stress. So we don't want that to stop. We don't, the goal of, of nervous system regulation at any age is not to have this flat line, constant calm. It's also not to have like the extreme activation and then the extreme you know, height, like collapse responses. So we don't want that, like the really high highs and the low lows, but we do want waves. Like we want to just be able to like, you know, okay, we're a little activated. I feel it. I release it. I come back to calm, you know? Yeah. 
Mm, that's so good. Well, Jenna, I could talk to you all day long. Um, this <laughs> went a little long because we just have so much to talk about. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of your wisdom. Can you tell the people that are listening where they can find you? And if you do have any other resources, um, what those are? Sure. Yeah. So I'm felt since WPG Winnipeg um, on Instagram. My website is just jennaham.com. Um, I, I'm not, I don't specifically work with parents, so I just work with adults. They might be parents. Um, a few of my offerings include like a polyvagal theory workshop. So you learn more about like what's going on in your autonomic nervous system. I do speak to children, um, for a part of it, but it's not the, the primary focus. Um, I have a workshop on internal family systems, which I sort of talked about briefly, the parts work stuff. Uh, and then I have like a yoga program that's sort of like polyvagal informed. So it's just like a somatic practice that where you reflect and you notice your state shifts and, and that kind of thing. So those are the three things that are available um, to anyone outside of my province. So one-on-one, -on -one, I can only work with people locally, but those, those three are available to anyone. And yeah, you can reach out to me. Instagram's probably the easiest or email. If you head to my Instagram, you'll see my email. So yeah. Awesome. And I'll share those links in the show notes so that you can, people can find them easily. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. This was really helpful. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, if you like this podcast, if you appreciate any of the episodes and have found them helpful to you, would you please do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review? Those reviews really help this podcast reach more people, so I would so appreciate that. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one -one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.